The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Chad Griffin is the president of the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest civil rights organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Americans. As the midterm elections bear down upon us, Griffin's traveling all over the country, helping LGBTQ and allied candidates in their quest for higher office and being a voice for millions of Americans who've had enough. When I asked Griffin about his optimism for the future, he was unequivocal. We are going to get our country back. Chad Griffin, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So in 2015, the LGBT community was on top of the world. And that was when the Supreme Court um, ruled that marriage equality was was the law of the land. And as the co-founder of the American Foundation for Equal Rights, I mean, you were part of the effort to get Proposition 8 overturned by the Supreme Court. I would love to get your thoughts, your personal thoughts on what it was like then, that during that time of, of leading the fight and then the ultimate culmination being the 2015 ruling. Well, um, as you point out, that was certainly a different moment in history, both for the LGBTQ movement, but also just for uh, the history of our country and of American politics. Um, at that time, I you know, think back uh, to being in that Supreme Court and standing in front of it. And, you know, every time you walk in, you look up and you see those words, you know, equal justice uh, under law. And while you disagree with you know, many decisions that might come out of that building at the end of the day, you have faith in democracy and you have faith in the checks and balances uh, in this country. Um, and then you look forward to where uh, we are today and you have a president that is attacking uh, virtually every single minority community uh, in this country. Um, you have a Supreme Court that um, has stood up for LGBTQ rights, um, quite frankly, for nearly three decades with Justice Kennedy um, authoring every single opinion that moved um, this country forward uh, when it comes to LGBTQ rights, including marriage equality. Um, and to see him stepping down at this time uh, and to see uh, this president uh, whose fitness for office uh, is questioned um, for, for quite good reason um, means that we are um, we're at a scary time uh, in the history of our country. Uh, at the same time, um, I look at the LGBTQ community and communities of color and immigrants, and you see people standing up and rising up like we have never seen before, including during the marriage equality movement. Mm -hmm. And I, and I want to get into to all of that uh, during this discussion, but I want to stick with pre, pre-Trump. Okay. And were you surprised that Justice Kennedy, given everything that he's done and all of his LGBT equality decisions all came down on June 26th, were you surprised that he had announced his retirement? It had been rumored for some time in Washington that he was uh, ready to retire. Um, but given uh, this president and given this president's hateful agenda um, and given this president's attacks on LGBTQ people and so many other uh, communities, um, 
I think I was surprised um, that uh, a justice who has stood up um, for so, on so many occasions um, for these critical issues uh, would choose to uh, retire at this time and, and give this president yet another opportunity. But um, at the same time, when you have justices that have given uh, decades of their life, um, you can understand that for perhaps their own personal reasons, they may choose to leave. But that sort of gets to the role of advise and consent. And that gets to the role of the United States Senate and our senators doing their job uh, at a time like this. During the campaign, during the presidential campaign, then candidate Donald Trump, I remember during an interview that he did on the Today Show out there on the plaza with 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 Savannah and Matt saying he was asked the question about about transgender rights and the so-called transgender bathroom issues. And he said um, he was very supportive of, you know, allowing transgender people to use the bathroom that conforms to their gender identity. And then um, subsequently on the campaign trail said that he was going to be the best friend that the LGBT community has ever had. Did you believe him when he said that at the time? No. And throughout the campaign, I, I and HRC and other social justice organizations were screaming as loud as we could, um, calling him out on his ability to, quite frankly, get away um, with articulating those positions because he was trying to be everything to everyone. He said that on one day, and then within a few days, he had reversed that position. He also um, said during the campaign that he was uh, against marriage equality. He also said on the campaign that he would uh, appoint justices uh, that would be in that same uh, vein, uh, who would overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, and so many other issues important to the LGBTQ community. But if anyone had a second of doubt there was a single moment that that doubt should have washed away. Arguably the single most important decision that a nominee of either party makes is his or her choice for vice president. Number two, the person you are relying on, the person you believe is qualified to step in should something happen and you have to step away. Donald Trump chose Mike Pence and Mike Pence has been at the forefront of attacks on our community for his entire life not just voting the wrong way, but leading the charge since his time in Congress, his time as governor, his time on the campaign trail, his time as head of the transition, and certainly his time as vice president. Back in the day when he was a member of the House, he had a perfect zero on our scorecard. It's really hard zero. to earn a perfect zero. How many, people, uh, how many people on that scorecard of his stature have gotten a zero? Well, there are certainly dozens of members of Congress who are in zeros, but you can there, there are people who are not at the forefront of standing up for, you know, equality who may have a 20, a 30, a 40, a 50. Uh, Mike Pence had a zero. He was against everything that we stand for and believe in. Uh, he championed um, positions against some of the most common sense legislation that had bipartisan support, like hate crimes protections. Um, he is a man who has built his career attacking and undermining the rights of LGBTQ people. And then just look what he did as governor. Um, he literally would have most likely lost his own reelection of governor 
had Donald Trump not thrown him a, a life raft um, because of his attacks on our community. He pushed forward and championed a license to discriminate in his own state that received such backlash from Democrats, Republicans, independents in the business community um, that he himself ultimately backtracked. He was responsible for policies that led to the spread of HIV and AIDS in his state um, time and time again. Uh, this vice president throughout his entire career has stood in the way um, and has stood in opposition to LGBTQ equality. That's who Donald Trump chose as his number two. And quite frankly, that's who's playing the role of shadow president today. Uh, appointments throughout the administration, including those that don't make headlines, but appointments within civil rights divisions of departments and agencies that have incredible impact uh, on our community and other marginalized communities across this country. Um, that should have been the moment that if anyone had any doubt um, of Donald Trump's true views uh, on our community uh, would have been his choice uh, for a vice president. Well, in the first few months in office, talking about Mike Pence and his uh, anti-equality agenda, one of the big things that was out there was this so-called religious freedom executive order that you know a draft was leaked out and we all got to see it. And it looked remarkably like a carbon copy of what was tried, what was attempted in Indiana. I don't know. I'm just going on my gut, but you, you are in the trenches. Was that the now Vice President Pence trying to push forward an agenda he couldn't do as governor as Vice President of the United States? The answer is yes and no doubt. And by the way, he was pushing for that even before he was in the White House. As the head of the transition, he was going across the country, picking our enemies off the battlefield, putting them on transition committees, and ultimately many of them have landed uh, in positions uh, of, of power uh, across government. So he was already lining that up in the transition. And what you saw once they took office, um, Mike Pence started implementing his agenda. Um, and, and Donald Trump gave him the ability and the power and the support to do that. Um, and that's what he's been doing, you know, day in and day out. Um, Mike Pence has put his staff political and policy uh, throughout the White House and throughout government. Um, and they're implementing his hateful uh, agenda. Now, you say President Trump has given um, Vice President Pence the ability and power and support that in a normal administration that would mean that the president, like the orders are coming from the president. But am I right in thinking like, President Trump ultimately couldn't care less about any of this stuff and that it's Vice President Pence and other people within the administration with their own agendas running wild and free without any supervision from, from the president or care, not supervision, care well, president. well, I think we can only judge uh, a president based on his actions and inactions. So through that lens, uh, this president is complicit in every single decision and action that has come out of this administration. If you look at what happened with the transgender troop ban, um, that came from this president out of a tweet. Right. He certainly could have chosen not to do that. Um, we knew that the night before... Um, Vice President Pence was on the Hill working with Vicki Hartzler, um, a member of Congress who has worked hard to undermine the rights of LGBTQ people and especially trans people. And when when she when she was unable to achieve her agenda uh, through a legislative action, because a number of Republicans and Democrats stood up uh, to to oppose it. The next thing you know, Mike Pence is back at the White House and the next morning we all 
were surprised by a tweet that this president was banning brave transgender troops, many of whom, by the way, this often gets missed. There are more than there are an estimated 10,000 transgender troops serving our country today. So just imagine the number of those people who were in war zones around the country or around the world with their families stationed around the world with them. And they look down and realize that their commander in chief has attacked them and has said that they are not fit to serve. Whereas in reality, I think it's much easier for them to make the case that their commander in chief is the one unfit uh, to serve. Um, so I, I don't think you can dis distance the president uh, from these actions. I do think it's true um, that this president has had has been on every side of virtually every issue. If you look at his time in office and his time prior to that, um, he cares about his personal power and what he can do to preserve his personal power. I do think you're right. And that's what drives him day in and day out. Um, Mike Pence believes in these things to his core. We have seen it for decades. And if there's one thing you can say about him, he's been consistent. He has been consistent with his attacks on our community for decades. And the other thing I'll say is, I think that Mike Pence is the most powerful vice president, certainly in modern history, and the least scrutinized vice president in history. If you look back at Previous vice presidents, there was you know tremendous press coverage. There was a press corps almost always with them on every trip, and there was. But today, because of the insanity that comes from this president and that comes from the West Wing and everything, investigations and so forth that have been brought about um, because of them, there's not a lot of bandwidth um, for folks to really shine a spotlight uh, on this vice president. And we have made it a top priority to do everything we can to ensure that the spotlight never leaves Vice President uh, Pence. The American public needs to understand what he is doing, some of which is public, and what he is doing, much of which he tries to do under the radar. Oh, okay, so give, a, give an example of something he's trying to do under the radar. I mean, the executive order was, was one thing. That's the only thing that I can think of offhand that was probably the most brazen. What else am I not? So, so if you look across the board, um, there are direct lines from appointees in departments and agencies across this administration that are former Mike Pence uh, employees, former Mike Pence staff, whether it's policy staff or, or, or political staff. Then if you look at what's happening within civil rights divisions, um, the education department is one of the great examples where you earlier used um, the term uh, religious uh, freedom discussions. I would call it religious refusals, um, where administration officials, again, something long championed by this vice president, has, um, has twisted, used, misused, and abused religion to justify discrimination against our community. Um, you see that uh, in, in departments and agencies across the board, but I think there is perhaps no better example uh, than what's happening uh, at the Department of Education where you have a secretary and you have a civil rights division uh, that is refusing to investigate uh, complaints. The other place you can look um, are judicial uh, nominees, the types of nominees uh, that in any other administration would have been rendered unqualified to serve who have long histories 
um, of, of, of advocates and, and quite frankly, political advocates, not just judicial advocates, um, against, not just against equality, but finding ways to use and misuse religion to justify a discrimination. These are all things that Mike Pence's entire career uh, has been centered on. Do you think just listening to you, I just realized, wait, so is he so he's been seeding the government with people who let's say something happens and President Trump is removed from office or is no longer president that Mike Pence, Vice President Pence has a turnkey operation to seamlessly become president with no no lag time. There's no question that Mike Pence um, has been laying the groundwork to be president uh, of the United States. Should this president um, leave office uh, in whatever routes that may uh, take, um, he has a political staff. He has a PAC. He has put his policy people in charge, by the way, not just in departments and agencies, including folks in charge of West Wing departments. Um, and so Mike Pence has been working hard behind the scenes and whether this president's aware of it or not, I don't know. Um, but there is no question that he is laying the groundwork uh, to attempt uh, to step in uh, should, should Donald Trump exit office. OK, so Vice President Pence is laying the groundwork. Now, let's talk about what what you're doing uh, in terms of laying the groundwork to try to blunt anything that that they could do everyone's focused and by that what i mean is everyone's focused on the 20 on the 2018 midterm elections what's going to happen in november with all the special elections that we've seen so far there's an energy around the country that is unmistakable you travel around the country pretty much constantly is the energy we're seeing at the we're seeing in news coverage and clearly in voting results is that what you're seeing on the ground and does that energy have any kind of partisan edge to it I have never seen in my career the kind of grassroots energy and activism like we see today um, I think if you look there is no doubt we are living through a very dark moment in the history of our country. But I really do believe if you fast forward two years, four years, five years, we will look back at this moment and see it as one of the great awakenings of our democracy. We are seeing people not just turning out to vote in these special elections and in these off-year elections, not just turning out to vote. We're seeing them show up to volunteer, to register other people to vote. We're seeing them show up to make phone calls to turn out voters. We're seeing them show up for canvases like we saw in Alabama, knocking on doors to turn out LGBTQ people and allies uh, for Doug Jones. We saw it in Virginia in the election of, of Danica Rome. Um, these last 18 months, I, I, I really believe um, we will look back at, at this time as a great awakening uh, of our democracy. Um, in terms of our volunteer efforts, we have over 3 million members and supporters uh, around this country. We have prioritized key races. Um, we're engaged in the largest grassroots expansion uh, in the history of the organization, focused on midterm elections. Um, and in our volunteer trainings and in our Canvas operations, whether it's for Tammy Baldwin you know, in Wisconsin or Kirsten Cinema uh, in Arizona, we are seeing folks turn out unlike we've ever seen. 
before. Has, ever. It, has HRC ever been involved in a midterm election? Yes, like we've, this? we've always been involved in a midterm election, but we've never been engaged as early. We've never endorsed as many candidates uh, as we've endorsed this time, and we've never had. We will have 130 full-time uh, staff and organizers uh, between six states and between our 35 uh, some odd priority congressional races uh, around this country. So this is the single largest uh, grassroots expansion in the history of our movement. And we're targeting not just LGBTQ voters uh, in these priority races and in these priority states. We're also targeting allies, uh, folks who will make a candidate's position on a quality, uh, a deciding factor in who gets their vote. What, so how do you identify that person? So we have done, uh, it's a great question because as, as you know, um, LGBTQ people are an intentionally excluded uh, from the United States census. Um, so while you can target a female voter or a single voter or an African-American voter or an Asian voter, um, you cannot do that with LGBTQ people using uh, the census. So we started investing about four years ago uh, for the creation of an equality voter model using decades of our own data and using uh, decades of consumer data in a partnership with Catalyst uh, to create an equality voter model um, and to identify all the way down to the household um, what voters are motivated by LGBTQ equality, either by a candidate's position, an incumbent who is anti-equality, and a voter knowing that, or a candidate who is pro-equality, who is championing equality. Um, and if you um, overlay the 7 million voters in this country, if we, if we really believe the 5% figure, and we know it's much higher, but when you add our allies to that, that's more than 50 million targeted voters uh, across the country today. K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow, and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives, and perhaps one day, yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine, where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. So then pull back to 38,000 feet and um, take off your hat as an LGBTQ leader and put on your hat as a political strategist and political leader, because that's also what you are in your travels around the country. Um, give the same analysis in terms of in terms of overall the energy that you're seeing on the ground, specifically in your work with HRC, is that replicated in all sorts of communities around the country? And again, is it is that activism, is that grassroots energy, does it have a partisan edge? Meaning, is it that the Democratic base is super fired up? Or is it that a lot of people, no matter what their political allegiance a lot of people are fired up because they are horrified or angry or upset by what's happening here in Washington. Um, there is no doubt it's across the board. And that's why in all of the races that we invest in, 
we have partnerships. Um, in Alabama, our, partners, our partnership was the NAACP of Alabama, uh, where we focused on a voter uh, turnout effort. And there is no doubt in the state of Alabama, um, without women of color, without black women voting, uh, Doug Jones uh, would not be a United States senator today. You see the same thing across the country. Marginalized communities all across this country are turning out in massive numbers for a host of reasons. But at the forefront of that is who Donald Trump is and what Donald Trump is doing to our communities. So I, I will also say I have never seen more coordination and more collaboration uh, across social justice movements to stand up, to fight back, and to turn resistance, um, I find that word a bit too passive, um, turning to, but, but really turning the corner from resistance to action. Uh, and we see it across the board, whether it's partnerships with the NAACP or Planned Parenthood or NARAL um, or other organizations uh, that are strong in each of these uh, key areas. It's the only way we win. We won't win on our own with just LGBTQ voters, just voters of color, or just, um, it takes us all turning out and turning out uh, in force. And to your, to your question about partisan identities. Yes, certainly Democrats are motivated, but so too are independent voters. People in states across this country that where they have the ability have declined to even state a party or claim a party, uh, but perhaps even more so what you see is first-time voters. What you see is millennial voters. Folks who will, for the first time, be voting age this time. These are the people who are showing up in mass. I was just in two targeted congressional races in, uh, in Orange County and San Diego County uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we did events uh, with the pro-equality candidates in both of those races. And you look across the room, it is one of the most diverse gatherings you have ever seen. LGBTQ people, allies, people of color, all coming together and saying, we've got to do something about this administration. And it's so easy these days to get distracted by, you know, Bob Mueller or Stormy Daniels or all the other many things that are happening in the ether. But us all coming to terms, there's one thing we all have the power to do something about. And I would say priority one, two, and three, midterm elections, midterm elections, midterm elections. And when all of our collective communities turn out and show up, we win. And that's how we take back a pro-equality, uh, sane majority in the House and the Senate. I really believe both are possible. Hmm. I really do believe uh, that both uh, are possible. Well, I mean, that sounds very much like 2006. Everyone was saying then, you know, the House... You know, that looks almost like a lock. The Senate's impossible. And then, lo and behold, I woke up the next morning and not only had Democrats taken back the House, but they took back the Senate. You actually think that that's possible? I, I think it's possible because of the grassroots engagement and uprising that we are seeing all across this country. It will be because of turnout. Communities that have historically dropped in turnout in midterm elections, I really believe we're going to see the reversal of that trend uh, in this election. And I, I quite frankly think that, you know, progressives and Democrats need to stop the conversation that it's hard and the numbers are harder in the Senate. All those things are true, but we can actually do it. So let's focus on doing it. Let's focus on turning out uh, our communities. And then let's be able to celebrate pro-equality majorities in the House and in the Senate. Um, and finally, 
we will have a branch of government willing to stand up and able uh, to stand up to this administration and push back and stop some of the hateful things that we are seeing come out of this White House and a Congress that rubber stamps everything. What about the uprising on the other side? Or is there an uprising on the other side, on the, the supporters of of the president, the ones who thrill at his rallies and who um, believe um, everything that he says and, and believe in Everything that he does, are you not also seeing in your travels an equal and opposite reaction from what you're seeing? No, because I I think it's fair to say um, that the Republican Party certainly has a far right wing base, but uh, that will perhaps never uh, leave this president, regardless of what he's accused of, charged of or even acknowledges. Um, But most Americans are fair minded people. and most Americans care about health care. And most Americans feel like people should be treated with dignity and with respect. And every single day, what they are seeing is a president attacking and demeaning American people, attacking and demeaning our troops, trying to undermine the access to health care, or promoting a Supreme Court justice that would overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. That's what the American electorate is seeing. I believe um, at the end of the day that these midterm elections, um, some of those people who who really believe that Donald Trump might be a more moderate minded person. Um, Who's that? That, that has that has left. Um, oh, OK. <laughs> it, that 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 has, um, I think, left the minds of many of those out there who who perhaps thought he was going to come to the White House and champion Uh, policies that would support uh, working families. Uh, He has not done that. Um, And that's why I think you do not see the same kind of enthusiasm and energy uh, around the midterm elections. There's no evidence of it in any of the special elections uh, that have happened uh, or the off-year elections in Virginia and New Jersey. Um, You're seeing incredible enthusiasm um, on the other side. I share your optimism about November, especially when it comes to the House, although 2016 has forever cured me of believing in and trusting with all my heart polls. Um, but what I'm with ha- you on that. But what happens, though, because the other the other possibility is also true. What happens if Democrats come up short? What if Democrats don't take back the majority, but shrink the majority of the Republicans in the House? Is that what would what lessons would you take from that? Well, I think it's important um, and critically important uh, that we have a majority. We're seeing the consequences uh, today of a Supreme Court nominee that this president nominated uh, and the party sticking together uh, and supporting even in a time where this president is being investigated and the accusations there that um, that that he is not fit to serve and broke a host of laws. If ever there was a time that fair minded Republicans in the Senate would come together and say, we're going to push pause, we're going to push pause until this investigation is concluded, and then we will move forward with a legitimate, thoughtful process um, as it relates to the Supreme Court. Um, they have the majority. That means they have the power. Um, and so that's why I say um, taking back um, a sane pro-equality majority in one house would be significant and a huge victory. Uh, taking back a sane pro-equality majority in both, 
I think would be the ultimate uh, victory. Yes, it's hard. We've done hard things before. We've done things before and achieved things that people said was hard or there were obstacles we couldn't overcome. We need to focus uh, on what's possible. Um, I don't think we're going to fall up, uh, fall short, because if you look at the enthusiasm around the country, if you look at the quality and the diversity of candidates um, running in these in these House races and in these Senate races, um, the the energy and the momentum uh, is is on our side. Um, and every day the president uh, opens his mouth, I think he increases uh, the chances uh, of of being able to take back uh, one. Uh, or both chambers. You know, I went to uh, a, a briefing for a particular candidate who's running for office, um, who would be an, an historic um, elected official if elected. And one of the things that was discussed was this so-called Iowa effect, um, meaning if this candidate were to clear this certain hurdle, it would create the Iowa effect that um, was caused when Barack Obama won Iowa. Uh, particularly for African-Americans, there are a lot of people, my mother included, she was Hillary. She was so Hillary until the night of the Iowa caucuses and Barack Obama won. And for her, the signal was, wait, they voted for him? That means he has a shot. They, of course, being white people. I'm black, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I got that. (laughs) Uh, for for, For the listener. Do you think that these electoral wins around around the country, uh, Danica Rome in the Virginia legislature, um, if I remember correctly, there were two transgender um, uh, citizens of Minneapolis who joined this, who were elected to city council. There's an African-American mayor of Butte, Montana. Uh, we, we've seen, um, you know, Andrew Gillum. In Florida. Who, who, in Florida, who was a guest of the podcast back in June, who no one gave a shot, and yet he won. Do you think that those examples of people seeing people who look like them, who defy the odds, is that are these wins creating an Iowa effect that you think will not only um, deliver the House back to the Democrats, but also the Senate? There is, there is no question. If you look across communities, um, there's Nelson Araujo, who's running for a secretary of state that would be a historic win uh, in Nevada. There's Christine Halquist, that's the Democratic nominee, the first openly transgender Democratic nominee uh, for governor uh, in Vermont. Um, these are all trailblazers. These are all trailblazers, and they are motivating not just um, the communities from which they come, but they are motivating allies across communities. Um, and I think they are setting the stage for those who will follow them, but they are also having massive impact in terms of voter engagement and voter excitement in these districts. We see today historic numbers of people of color, historic numbers of women, historic numbers of LGBTQ people uh, standing up, defying the odds, running for office and proving and showing they can win. Um, Danica Rome's actually a great example in that district that most folks thought Danica had no chance of winning. That seat was held by Bob Marshall, who was Virginia's self-described chief homophobe. He was this co-sponsor of Virginia's anti-trans bill. And today he is her constituent. And that happened because Danica Rome was the qualified candidate 
was the experienced candidate. Danica had policy on her side. Danica organized. And oh, yes, she happens to have made history because of that. But that's not why she won. She won because she ran a campaign that engaged voters across that district. And we are seeing that play out in congressional races, in mayoral races, in governor's races, in House and Senate races uh, all across this country. It's good for America. So, Justin, I'm glad you, you brought up the way Danica Rome ran her race because it is a bit of a shift. Maybe 20 years ago, an LGBT candidate running for office would either lead with that, you know, you know, let's bring change because I'm I'm openly LGBTQ, and therefore because of that, um, I will bring a different perspective. This go round, the LGBTQ is in the background and in the foreground. I remember Danica's whole campaign was about traffic and congestion. That's, that's right. all. She, that's that's all she talked about, and her opponent tried to make her her gender identity an issue. In Virginia, and he was a, a deep red member of the Virginia legislature and and this entrenched incumbent, and yet she was able to win on the issues. Are we seeing not only a political shift, but also a generational shift happening around the country? I, th- I think that's true, but I, I also think there's a role and component here that um, the media place. Um, Because oftentimes in these races, particularly at the local and state level, you will see um, reporters and and TV outlets and so forth hold on to the history making part. And that will dominate. That sometimes has dominated coverage throughout entire campaigns. And you'll see it lead story day in uh, and day out. I've seen Stacey Abrams talk about this. Stacey is the most qualified candidate to be the governor of Georgia because of her qualifications, because of her vision for the state, because of her experience and skill set. And yes, she would make history if she won. The same goes for for Andrew and, you know, Andrew Gillum in Florida or, or Christine Hallquist. They are the most qualified candidates. That's why the voters have chosen them in these primaries. And that's why I believe in the general elections, you are going to see historic numbers um, of diverse candidates winning uh, across the country. These people are running on their experience, on their vision, on their skill set, and fair-minded Americans are supporting them. And the other thing I think this goes to, if we look across the board on social justice issues, and if we aren't polling likely voters, if we're just polling the American people, the vast majority of people support all of these issues that we could talk about, from criminal justice reform to LGBTQ rights to a woman's right and access to safe and legal abortion. Across the board, the vast majority of Americans support those issues. And so if the vast majority of Americans turn out in elections, that means the candidates that hold those issues are going to win. Our challenge historically has often been, particularly in midterms, you see a drop, and those polls and pollsters that you were talking about are simply looking through the lens of what they define as the likely voter. And they're assuming that a lot of these people we're talking about aren't going to show up in an election. But when the majority of voters, when we turn out in force, they're with us on these issues, and therefore the candidates who are standing on the right side of these issues win. I mean, listening to you, um, I mean, you're very forceful. You're you're very passionate. These are dark, dark times, no doubt. Um, and yet, listening to you, 
and we've known each other a long time. So I know that you have, you, I mean, you're an optimist and you've taken on big causes before, but I actually get a sense from you, a, a hopeful sense from you that despite the dark times that we're in and the, and the craziness that is happening around us that we shouldn't despair. You don't despair. No. Yes. These are dark times, but in these dark times, it calls on all of us to do more. It calls on all of us to focus on the possible, not what's difficult, not what's impossible. Focus on what we can actually do something about. We are going to get our country back. We are going to. At the end of the day, this is going to be a chapter in the history of our country that will be written as one of the darkest moments, not the only dark moment. We have certainly had many in the history of this country. This is a dark and dangerous moment for the country uh, and for the world, but we can actually do something about it. First step is the midterm elections and second step is 2020. That's how we actually take our country back. That's how we start to restore uh, the respect uh, around the world. Um, we can do it. We have done it before. We will do it again. And if you look back at another dark time in 2016, uh, when Donald Trump won on that very same election night in the state of North Carolina, a former governor named Pat McCrory staked his entire election on not just attacking LGBTQ people, but attacking trans people especially. And in a state that Donald Trump won by four points, that same state voted to oust, for the first time in its history, the incumbent governor, because he attacked our community. Those attacks inspired turnout across the state of North Carolina like we had not seen uh, before. LGBTQ people, allies, Democrats, independents, and some Republicans standing up and saying, we won't stand for this hate and voted to oust Pat McCrory. We can repeat that in states all across this country, and I believe we're going to this November. Chad Griffin, president of the Human Rights Campaign, thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a show that brings you daily analysis from political correspondent James Holman. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.